Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm speaking with Elaine McNally. Elaine is an English head of department and enthusiastic presence on Twitter, where she tweets at Mrs. MacTeach33. I reached out for a chat with Elaine after seeing her speak at the Teach Meet English Icons event earlier this year. Her presentation, Powerful Voices, a Year 8 Curriculum, tackled the topic of how she had tried to deliver diversity within her department's curriculum thinking. Although an important and timely endeavour, what stood out about the way Elaine navigated the discussion was her observation that she had felt out of her depth at times. This was due to the thorny nature of diversity as a term which is me quoting Elaine, who was a quoting Benny Cara. Needless to say, this was a fantastic exploration of the consequences for planning and teaching around the concept of diversity and something that I wanted to be able to talk about in more detail. So, we discussed the best text Elaine's ever read, taught or learned herself, what diversity actually means when leading a curriculum rethink from Elaine's perspective, the canonical or classic texts that have been kept in Elaine's Key Stage 3 curriculum and how she approaches them with diverse interpretations in mind, the texts her department have introduced or kept that have a more diverse point of view at their core, and finally, the substantive and disciplinary concepts that Elaine and her team chose to include after their Key Stage 3 review. At a time when my own school foundation is considering its output in relation to empire, imperialism and inclusion, this was a conversation I hugely benefited from thinking forwards uh, into the future. So thanks again to Elaine for that. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK. Uh, okay, Elaine. Um, nice, easy question to start with. What is the best text you've ever read, taught, or learned yourself whilst you're at school? Okay, so that is um, that was a really exciting question for me, and uh, it was very difficult to decide, actually, because my best text can vary on a week by week basis. But in the end, I went for Paradise Lost um, by John Milton um, because. Um, it is just, um, it's just extraordinary. It's the most extraordinary text I've ever encountered. Um, and it has such a kind of pervasive influence um, and presence, I think. But also because I chose it, and I think this will kind of link to some of the things that we'll talk about later, is because it really does open itself up to just endless interpretation. Um, I love it. I love, I just love it so much. Um, I love Satan, um, obviously, you know, that kind of epic hero, rebel, anarchic, um, just uh, kind of with his strength, his audacity, his charisma, his rhetorical skill. Um, God, maybe not so much, a bit dull. That, and that, I, that kind of idea of God as a tyrant is a kind of common theme through criticism. Um, just, there's just, it's just full of just some of the best, the most gorgeous, wonderful descriptions and words. And I was kind of thinking actually for this, which would be my favorite books. And I think I'd probably have to pick kind of book one and book two, and then book six. Um, because in book six, you get the war in heaven and it's just, uh, you know, they're lobbing mountains at each other. It's, uh, they're talking about, um, gunpowder and, 
kind of the way in which the, the, the angels are just obliterated by cannonballs. Yeah, I, I love it. Um, and I like, um, I also think um, the other reason why I picked it is because it just, uh, it's the gift that keeps on giving. You know, there's just endless, like I said, endless kind of possible interpretations. And it's full of acrostics, which are mm. just so cool. And I love that. And the first time I spotted Satan down the, the kind of side, as you know, the, the first letter of the, the lines was just a real kind of um, like goosebump moment. And I love that there's this kind of ability to read both vertically and horizontally in the text. There's a kind of sort of warp and weft. And there's this really kind of meticulous, intricate architecture to it. Um, yeah, I, I do. I just love it so much. Um, and I've taught it to year six and I've taught it to year 13 as well. So I've taught it. Um, I, I once uh, worked um, in a, in a uh, prep school. It was just for a very sort of small amount of time. And they didn't really seem to have a curriculum. <laughs> I was just sort of given year six. And so I did a bit of um, Paradise Lost with them and we wrote A Tourist Guide to Hell. Yeah, and they, and they loved it. They absolutely loved it. It was just uh, brilliant. So, yeah, I think it, it's uh, amazing. What well, such a good yeah. choice. Yeah, I think that's the first, yeah. first time I've heard Paradise Lost kind of mentioned. Um, whenever I've asked that question, it is such a good it's one, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the very few texts at university that like I can genuinely remember loving and tackling oh, yeah. and struggling with and, and enjoying and all those things. So yeah. Um yeah. you I, I sort of came into I've obviously kind of come into contact with all your um like output on Twitter and stuff like that, Elaine, which is mm. always very helpful, fantastic, and and um everything else. But more recently when the Teach Me. English icons, the key stage three uh, presentations were happening a couple of weeks ago, months ago, whenever it was. Um, it, it as as I was saying before we started, kind of the 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 interview, the, there was one or two that really hit home with me in terms of the sort of considerations I need to make uh, or my department needs to make with regards to the curriculum and yours, um, centered around like diversity in key stage three mm -hmm. or diversity in in English more generally. I suppose it could also be considered. So, um, before we kind of talk in detail about uh, like what you discussed in the presentation and stuff, um, the diversity is such a, a thorny word or concept whatever you want to call it um in, when, when you when you were planning the presentation and when you think about it now when you're thinking about diversity as like a, a concept within teaching like what what considerations are you making there yeah and it is it's um kind of a word that encompasses such a vast range of, of sort of associations um, for me, when I'm talking about diversity, um, at the moment, I'm thinking about um, ideas to do with race, migration, um, belonging and empire um, specifically. Um, and that's because um, I've done a, um, I applied for a, a, a fellowship run by the Traction Project, which was kind of linked to um, a European Research Council funded project called TIDE. Um, and so I've been doing, um, I've become a kind of fellowship, uh, traction beacon teacher. Um, and it's just been extraordinary. And so we've kind of gone through different eras, um, different resources, different training, 
um, with the aim of kind of um, looking at the language and tools that you need to teach ideas about race, migration, belonging and empire. Um, and um, so for me, that's where my specific interest lies. Um, and that's when, when I'm talking about diversity, that those are the ideas that I'm associating with it at the moment, which is not to exclude anything else. But that's where I feel um, I've probably got some more knowledge at the moment. Mm, okay yeah I think that I think it is useful to kind of like as you were saying like define your terms when yeah you are dealing with such a um a big a big idea I think as I, I was mentioning before again like we diversity and equity is something which my school and the foundation schools that I work for we have to discuss on quite a regular basis and I'm not sure that I'm not sure that the people I sit down with I'm not sure we ever kind of have a shared idea of what we're talking about when we talk about diversity they're always really interesting conversations um but they don't really ever go anywhere in terms of like well how does this apply to the day-to-day job of being a teacher so I think that was really useful um um, to to define those terms um with with regards to sort of like the 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 actual presentation that you did then um you talked um rather brilliantly mice I had about mm-hmm. how to deal with um sort of canonical or classical texts when you're doing yeah. a review. Um with regard to like key stage during your school, which ones did you decide to um to keep? Um and 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 how do you approach them differently, the same, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Like um how how um yeah which one which ones did you keep and and have, yeah. do you kind of look at them with a different lens or not yeah so I I do think that knowing about the canon is important um and you can't just chuck out what is great literature and I do really believe that and in fact just going back to one of the reasons why I picked um Paradise Lost is because um the kind of the text that often goes along with that is John Milton's Areopagitica in which he he kind of um really argues passionately for, um, I think he uses the phrase promiscuous reading in it. And he says, if you don't read stuff, you can't know it. And if you don't know it, you can't question it and be critical about it. Um, And you've got to know stuff in order to critique it, Um, to just say, just to kind of sort of rip up the curriculum and and chuck out canonical texts is not, um, is not helpful I don't think, uh, I also don't think that that's particularly what decolonizing the curriculum is either, just um, because it's not reparative. It's not about, you know, we've got to tell different stories with the text we have. I, I really do think that that's the most important thing. And encountering canonical text doesn't mean that students are better equipped to critique them. Um, you know, these texts are wonderful, but they don't have to kind of ossify. I think we can, you know, can do more stuff with them. So to answer your question, like the texts we kept that, you know, you can approach with more diverse um, interpretations in mind, I think Shakespeare is is the most obvious there. Um, and um, so we've got a Midsummer Night's Dream um, in year seven, and we've got... Um, uh, the Tempest in Year Eight, and when I was thinking about the curriculum, there were some things that, I, that really needed to go that just weren't doing anything. We couldn't really deliver our disciplinary intentions through them. But there were some texts that I just love and I wanted to keep. And I think those two Shakespeare texts, you know, are texts that I think are really important. I think we can do better 
with the text that we've got. Um, and um, we can challenge them, we can interrogate them, and we can look at them from a different perspective. And I think, um, so the Tempest is really interesting um, because I think a, I was really uncomfortable with the sort of position we were taking, which was just looking at the character of Caliban through Prospero's eyes. And so you're just perpetuating that kind of colonial way of looking. And at best you're going, you know, or, well, you're sort of feeling sorry for him or, or you're revolted by him. But there didn't seem to be much between kind of victim or villain. Um, and in, um, uh, I think if you can start a story from a different place, then you can you can start looking at things differently. So rather than starting with the arrival of Prospero, let's start with the arrival of Caliban and look at him as an indigenous Native American who um, had his own culture, his own identity, his own language before someone else arrived. And then suddenly you give him agency. Um, and that isn't to detract from some of the less palatable aspects of his character because he isn't that nice, but that's complexity as well. I'm not trying to reduce him into something he isn't but I just felt that we could start telling the story of the Tempest from a different place um, and I think I mentioned this in the, the Teach Meet um, talk it, at the end of the play Alonso says this is a strange thing as air I looked at and that's the point the looking is the problem where we position ourselves in relation to the text is the problem not the text itself necessarily we can deconstruct it we can critique it we can question it we can tell a different story um, and that to me is really powerful and important and I think you can do that with um, A Midsummer Night's Dream which is full of some of the most appallingly um, racist language um, the, the two girls and when they're having that massive row they're kind of you know out you Ethiopian tawny tartar um, and in, um, you know, in a lot of, um, you know, and that, that needs looking at, it really does. It doesn't just need, oh, they're just saying nasty things to each other. No, it really does need looking at because texts kind of change as they move through time and how they receive changes. And so that might not be what they were saying then, but there's definitely something that is, needs to be looked at now in terms of that language. Um, yeah, and so and also the, the whole presentation of the Indian boy, I think, in Midsummer Night's Dream, you know, as a child who's been taken from his home and traded. Uh, yeah, there's kind of sort of Orientalist tropes around him as well, I think, that need unpicking. I remember you said something in the, um, the, the presentation, the Teach Me um, English Icons thing, and it, it made me... <laughs> It kind of it made me smile or laugh out loud. I'm not sure because I always use this as an example whenever I'm having an argument, uh, not an argument, but a discussion with someone. I think you mentioned the idea that what if we were to cast um, mm. Caliban as like a really good looking yes. person, like an incredibly yes. handsome or beautiful or whatever words you want to use, kind of. But I <laughs> I always say that with the kids, like with the students, like we talk about how in every production of like, let's say, and I know this is completely different and, and we're moving away from diversity or race, but if you think about like a doll's house and like, you know, Krogstad and, and or, oh, you know, yeah. any any drama where kind of, it, when every production that I see of that, it's just, 
you know, he's this kind of like wizened old man or he's this kind of, you know, uptight kind of whatever. And I do think that like, yeah, the casting, it really yeah. does change things. And if it was that even if all the other characters were relatively plain and Caliban was this beautiful kind Absolutely. of, you know, young yeah the the perspective would change like immediately so I thought that was quite an interesting way to reconsider perspective even from just even from a modern um audience's perspective I thought that was really useful um yeah um, it's, it's about positionality isn't it you know mm. about the, and, and that's really important um and yeah. about yeah and about the power structures that are enacted based on the position that we take in relation to a text yeah, I think w- watching quite like, um, again, it's not quite the same thing, but watching like movies from the 90s or the 80s, the 90s, 2000s and stuff, um, it, it you sort of, I, I'm like overseas at the moment and I haven't spent a lot of time with people who, you know, come from Southeast Asia or Hong Kong more specifically or China more specifically. You do realise how like certain people, of that particular ethnic background are positioned within kind of like Hollywood films or British TV and stuff like that. And it's, it it can be quite unpalatable in terms of like, you you realize that it's only since that, um, I haven't seen the film, but like that, what is it? Crazy rich Asians or something like that. Like it's, it's been a long time coming that we've had like protagonists or um, characters who were just, good looking people from a certain kind of ethnic background who are playing you know a particular kind of character role within within so uh, yeah it, it it's a really interesting consideration like you say to think about like where do we position ourselves as the viewer or the the, the, mm. the passive receiver of the information or the the action and 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 how do we feel about how should we feel about that in the 21st century um yeah. on the f- i think on the f- like sorry, on. Cast, casting can really kind of reanimate a text actually mm. and i think that's something that um we can do now with texts uh, to really you know thinking about what i just said about midsummer night's dream if uh lysander or uh, um is uh, or um, or one or uh, I've forgotten the girls uh, Hermia or Helena, if they're um, black or brown as opposed to white, what does that do to the language? Mm. Um, and I think uh, that's really worth um, thinking about. I mean, we don't think about a Midsummer Night's Dream consciously as a race play like Othello or Antony and Cleopatra, but there's actually quite a lot in there that is worth looking at definitely mm-hmm. and i think it gets glossed over um but in in not dealing with it we're simply kind of make we're normalizing the fact that that language is okay when mm. we just sort of focus on kind of like fairies skipping around the forest um <laughs> we're just sort of you know we're normalizing uh and kind of again we're making it sort of like part of our everyday conversation and it shouldn't be we should be interrogating it yeah, um, Othello's a funny one as well in terms of I came across a version that the RSC had put out um, uh, in, it must have been within the last 10 years and both Othello and Iago were played by, you know, um, like uh, black actors and that's fascinating. Like straight away I was saying to my partner who's also an English teacher, that's fascinating to think like, so you've you've almost, well, have you removed the race 
element. I don't know. There's so many layers of discussion there to have about like what happens to that play then, what happens to those yeah. discussion around kind of racism or xenophobia or whatever. So Shakespeare does seem to be this endlessly kind of, it just gives and gives and gives in terms of like allowing us to reflect on not just his work, but obviously like our own, you know, society and, and things like that. Yeah. He, he, he obviously forms part of the canon. Um, so well, whatever, on, you know, whatever yeah. those plays were doing in the 16th century, we can help them do something else now. That's what I think. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A hundred percent. I think all of those kind of like texts from 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, 20th, whatever. Um, there's a conversation to be had about like, what are the best ones to include? What mm. do students need exposure to? On the flip side of that, like what text have you introduced or, or kept mm within the key stage three curriculum, which have more of a diverse point of view at its core? Yeah. So when, because I was thinking about that question and it goes back to some of the stuff we were saying earlier. In, in I think, di- like we said, diversity isn't just about the single text. And to talk about um, keeping a text that has a more diverse point of view at its core, you could argue, well, that's any text. Depends on how we position ourselves. So in a way, you know, that question kind of is sort of signalling something about the performative nature of diversity that I really don't like because it's got to be structural. It's not the single text choice. Um, all texts, you know, every text travels through time. Every text, um, as it travels, it changes because of the people around it, because of the way that context of re- reception shifts and when we kind of identify a text as diverse then what we're saying is it's not like me it's different to me um we're immediately positioning it as other mm-hmm. um and so the language itself is really problematic um I, someone who really helped me kind of think these things through actually is um benny cara like reading her blogs and reading her she wrote a book called um, diversity in schools and that idea of like, um, you know, we've got to kind of usualize diversity, not just kind of, uh, kind of use, you know, just kind of sort of tick it off a list. Um, and we've, like I said earlier, we've really got to tell better stories and different stories with the text we have. And that's reparation rather than just, oh, well, look, I've got representation now. I, I've got, you know, here, here it is. I, I've got something on this, this characteristic or this, kind of group of people so um and the other thing is as well um that question made me think about is choosing it choosing the text because it's diverse is probably not best way of going about things Mm -hmm. so you kind of got to put your disciplinary intentions front and center like what does what do you want this text to do what are you what aspect of the curriculum is it going to enact what what is it you're trying to do with the get the students to learn through this text um but having said that um i also think uh when we're looking at our curriculum um so we did a lot with year eight because that sort of seemed like quite a weak point although what's interesting now is we've kind of got year eight really good and it's throw the others there's year seven and year nine around the edges into relief and I could sort of see actually well some things need to improve there but we did um we did want to put a different novel into year eight um and we've been doing a lot of work on structure um 
And the more I think about structure and patterns, actually, the more I think that they are absolutely integral to getting students to be really, really confident with talking about text. And so we wanted a text that could really help us do lots with structure. Um, and then we tried to select from a kind of a broad range of representative um, texts. And the one we came up with was um, the Bone Sparrow. Um, so we put that into year eight. So you could argue that does have a, a more diverse point of view at its core in that it sort of tells the story of people who aren't white European. But even that book, I think, is a bit problematic. And there is a bit of a kind of genre of refugee tales that I think has become a little bit, mm. um, I don't know, uh, it, it may allow us to feel a bit smug, maybe. Yeah. So, you know, so there's a kind of real issue for me in this idea of like voicing the voiceless. And Zana Phelan is, um, is you know, I mean, she's really interesting, actually. Um, and she sort of very acknowledges what she's doing in terms of writing the stories of Rohingya Muslims. Um, but I just felt a little bit uncomfortable with just that one perspective. So we have included um, some poetry and some prose written um, from with people's authentic voices as well to sort of balance it out a little bit. Although I think that the positionality that Zana Freylon takes is, um, is not one of just uh, a kind of victim narrative. She's not writing a victim narrative in that book at all. Um, yeah. So um, the other thing I, I did as well, just um, this is not key stage three, it was at key stage four, actually, it was just um, that just, creating texts for language paper one which is just oh, yeah. yeah just soul destroying <laughs> just such a dreadful thing but I just made a really deliberate decision to pick texts um that were completely um sort of out of the kind of the canon out of a kind of eurocentric perspective and I made a really conscious decision to kind of include a real mix of texts um, and I think there's an issue there because I think just um, giving students extracts um, can sometimes make diverse text peripheral, um, which is problematic in itself. But I also just thought, well, do you know what? It's, GCSE is, is language is so miserable anyway. So you, I just wanted to do, sort of introduce the GCSE students to some different books. And I just thought, well, maybe, maybe they'll... Um, they'll read this and they might pick the book up, you know, and actually that happened. One of my students, she, um, she really enjoyed the extract I picked from a book called The Sower and then she went and read the book. So, yeah, it was just sort of, mm. that was good. But yeah, yeah. so um, there's an opportunity there, I think, to kind of get in some more diverse texts. The, the, yeah, coming back to what you said a moment ago about the, the refugee literature, I do feel like we're only a couple of years away from I remember there was like an announcement from one of the like official kind of like uh, Holocaust groups or or Jewish kind of survivor groups where they were, they basically said like, can we have no more mm. Holocaust literature, please? Like, you know, you, all these kind of like Auschwitz historical fiction things, which mm. the, the heart's in the right place, I'm sure. Um, but there does now seem to be like a proliferation of refugee mm. literature written by and I, I don't know I've only like read here this and that but there's definitely there probably is a, there's definitely a temptation I think for schools to think well there's a lot of talk about diversity and 
there's a lot of talk about refugees, uh, you know, on, it's on the TV. It's, mm. you know, there's the war in Ukraine. There's been the war in Syria. There's war, well, mm. all, all these terrible things. Um, let's get this in the curriculum. And that way, you know, we're, we're, and again, I think the best, you know, I think that the best of intentions at heart, I think it has to come back to that thing that you mentioned before about like, are we really, are we choosing this book because of its disciplinary kind of uh, knowledge and its substantive mm-hmm. knowledge, as well as the fact that we're conscious that we do want to have a broad range of voices within the curriculum or is it only the latter? Is it just the latter? And and you you start to see more and more young adult fiction come in that's purely chosen for that particular topic. Um, but um, yeah, the, 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 the bone yeah the bone sparrows one. I've I've seen a couple of teachers talk about it, particularly abroad as well. So that's yeah, um, it's not one that I've read before actually. So maybe that'll mm-hmm. make that something I can read over the summer. Um, yeah, I really the, like it. <laughs> okay. okay um i think you may, might have just mentioned those um the the the, the poetry um oh, yeah. yeah but and again in the teach me english icons you kind of pointed out um the the the, the poetry that you do from um it's written by two poets who are kind of deaf i remember you you made the point of saying deaf with a capital d 100%, so to speak yeah. um who who are those two poets and um in relation to them, uh, you kind of commented on how it isn't the aim of that unit to get students to understand what it's like to be deaf. Yeah. Um, why do you feel that's an important approach when you're considering, um, you know, interacting with their work, their writing and and the students' kind of experience of that? Yeah, so the two poets are Raymond Antrobus and um, Christine Sun Kim, um, honestly, they're just, I could just talk for hours um, about, they're just amazing um, artists. But that point I made, um, when I said that, I said, we really, something about we don't teach, um, we don't teach the poetry to make hearing people understand what it's like to be deaf. Yeah, that was possibly about um, one of the kind of more unscripted part of my very heavily scripted um, Teach Me Icons presentation. And I had to, and it's really interesting that you kind of raised that. And I had to think long and hard about what I genuinely meant by that. Because when we teach literature, we teach, we, you know, it's the, we, there's all these kind of um, like uh, sort of maybe cliches or truisms about the idea of like we walk in someone else's shoes. We teach literature to teach empathy. And to some extent, those things are true. But I I think we should also be a bit suspicious of those things as well, because there's a fine line between kind of like empathising and then appropriating um, someone's story. And there's a couple of things that um, I was thinking about at the beginning of um, Iridescent Adolescent, which is the EMC publication. It talks about um, just... It made a really, really excellent point about diversity not um, in fiction, not being aimed at um, helping the reader to try on other people's coats, but to show uh, a kind of greater number of perspectives and visions of um, people walking around in their own coats, basically. Um, we, and I thought that was really important. We're not. So what did I mean when I said like said that? I think it's about 
I'm not trying to tell a story about a deaf person, deaf with a capital D, um, overcoming the odds, where we kind of like, oh, wow, you know, and tinged in with that admiration is pity. I'm not educating the hearing. Um, I am trying to amplify an authentic voice. But most importantly, it's not my lived experience. I'm not an expert. Um, uh, and I think, again, we just shouldn't reduce people down to this one characteristic. I think um, they're poets, first and foremost, um, and an aspect of them is their deafness in the same way that an aspect of them might be the colour of their skin or, or, or their job, or I don't know, but it's just an aspect. And I think when we reduce people down to one characteristic, we make this kind of sort of, um, it homogenises, it simplifies um, when people are much more complex, much more um sort of nuanced than that so um I didn't want to categorize um I think um and I didn't want to in the same way that um literature by black and brown authors is so often like like read through a white lens I didn't want to encounter that poetry by making a comparison to hearing people and apart from anything else Raymond Antrobus has written on many occasions that he's not here to educate a hearing person that's not what he's about and deafness is an experience not a trauma um so yeah he's uh he's um I don't think we have to place their poetry in a kind of hierarchical comparison um to us and, it, and also Antropus actually attacks the assumption that the hearing world world is the correct world he talks about audio supremacy um, you know, so yeah, I'm just very conscious that the reason why I'm teaching these poets is because their work is off the scale. It's just fabulous. Um, and we talk about his deafness, particularly um, when we do the poetry of Raymond Antrobus, but we also talk about quite a lot of other stuff. Because it doesn't, it's not, it's not that's it's not, not the single defined, one thing yeah. that defines what he wrote. He doesn't write about that in every poem. Mm. I mean, it's important. Yeah. Um but yeah, I don't want it to, to. I don't want to foreground the disability. Um, I didn't want to make deafness a sole focus. Um, yeah, and I think Chris Curtis's blog on um, tick box diversity. You know, I think that really influenced me there as well. Mm. I think I I was lucky enough to be able to do like a, a questionnaire recently in terms of. Um, Sorry, my uh, youngest okay. son's just being uh, transferred into the main bedroom. Um, um, I was lucky enough to do a, like a questionnaire where um, uh, it, it was kind of on this theme of like diversity or diverse understandings or diverse opinions or diverse this, diverse that, whatever. And quite quite a few of the questions were aimed at the idea of like, um, you know, um, do you think we're generally all of one mindset when it comes to uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, do you think that there are shared universal values when it comes to uh, the idea of like benevolence or kind of what it means to be good, what it means to be bad? Mm. And, and I was so tripping over myself to be like, yeah, of course, man, we're all the same. It doesn't matter. I mean, mm. we're all from different places and, and okay, we might look different, but underneath it all, yeah, like I'm the same as this, that and the other. And I got the results back and like my principal, who was the person who he's sort of like trained to sort of give feedback in these things. He said, I've seen this a hundred times before. 
Mm. And quite very often, like uh, people from a minor, uh, from a majority kind of cultural background, um, will, if the heart's in the right place, kind of be very eager to point out the fact that, like, oh yeah, there's, you know, we shouldn't see differences. We should try and join together, and we should have like a collective sense of blah blah blah. And he said, but the that that's not like the most um effective way or like useful way to look at things i think like you just said a moment ago elaine it's you're kind of just presenting them with another version of reality and it's like you know this is the way that other people live i don't really know what it's like you're probably never going to know what it's like but there are people out there who have a far different experience of things and there's no value judgment on it there's no kind of isn't this different or isn't this normal or, or whatever. Um, and I think that's something that like I've had to wrestle with this in the last few months or the last year, this idea that like, it's, it's almost, you've got to see the, 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 the kind of it, it you're almost standing side by side as opposed to like all as this big homogenous blob. Um, and it's, it's kind of raised questions with regard to, you know, when I've taught, books that are very or texts that are very heavy on the female experience you know whatever that means Mm. but like Mm. from specifically from a woman's perspective uh, and I've spoke to like another member of the department who um like happens to be a woman and we had an interesting conversation she sort of said like yeah I've thought twice about like any books that are heavily rooted in masculinity and it's like, to what extent am I using language which shows like, I really understand what it means to be a woman. And it's like, well, you don't really. Or what? to what extent am I using language which is like, I think we all need to step back and think about, you know, to what extent we understand this. So it's it, it, it really is a fantastic time to be having those considerations, I think. And I think if dealt with sensitively and, and kind of, perceptively and and all those things i think english departments in england and and abroad have got like a really good opportunity with the sort of discussions that you were highlighting in the presentation but like you said as well with chris curtis i remember reading that blog as well and i think that was quite a powerful really yeah yeah kind of message um i suppose it's coming away from diversity or coming away from um you know, the ideas of like migration and and, and mm. colonialism and, and things like that. And lastly, the last thing, this is something I've been a bit obsessed with um, mm. this year, these ideas with like substantive oh, concepts. Yeah. <laughs> 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 this, I know, yeah. it's like, like I put it on, I know, because I put it on that thing and then my, I might have completely changed my mind. What I, I think my, on. yeah, mine, particularly with the substantive ones, the disciplinary ones, I think it's a really interesting debate. And I've read um, um, Sam Gibbs's book this year and and, and David Diodow's when that came out. And But yeah. I think even just having conversations with people, like big heated conversations about, um, I'm, I'm not sure which one's easiest to ask about first, really. So I'll let you decide. But uh, within mm-hmm. your department, what kind of, what have you said? Um, what have you implemented? What are you planning to implement mm-hmm. around substantive and disciplinary concepts for England? Yeah, so when I kind of think of sub, sub, substan- well, first of all, I actually think it's really important you can't separate the two and you really can't separate the two in English. I don't know about other subjects. Um, when I think uh, in other subjects, knowledge can be, a, certainly substantive knowledge can be a more of a fixed entity, I think, than in English. Um, 
in English, knowledge is not kind of, uh, is not particularly hierarchical. Uh, it's very loosely connected. It's kind of, I think, uh, you know, just um, there are multiple interpretations of things. So I think even actually trying to nail down a definition of what I think it is is quite hard and it probably might not be right. I don't know. But what I think, so I originally came um, across the idea as well in history blogs. There's some really excellent history blogs out there that are super interesting. Um, And um, I suppose on one level, it does relate to some sort of basic factual content um, that, you know, it's important to know. And I think that in a department, it's important to share what you think that is. So there is a kind of sort of parity of um, experience for students that they're all kind of getting taught this, you know, some sort of factual content that is uniform. Um, But um, it could be knowledge about a text. So it could be knowledge to do with things like plot and character. Um, But the point is that that knowledge in English is always provisional. And this is where it gets a bit messy. So you get, you know, shiny study guides might kid you that that knowledge is a fixed thing, that this character, these three adjectives always, you know, but that's really reductive, I think. Um, And because uh, knowledge in English is really provisional, it's not fixed, um, we can read texts in different ways all the time. So when I think about substantive knowledge, I think I'm thinking broadly in kind of three areas, um, maybe four, actually. So basically the kind of sort of specific factual content, um, context, uh, and I mean, that's a thorny area as well. Um, Broader concepts, broader concepts that students will encounter Um, in different forms, um, in different um, manifestations through the curriculum. So concepts to do with, I don't know, power or ambition. Um, The sort of ideas about microcosm and macrocosm, maybe, those kind of things, I think can be taught, um, but they take on different meanings depending on where they are encountered and with what text they encountered as well. And then I think um, aspects of the writer's craft, I think uh, I would put under that substantive knowledge, things to do with um, kind of uh, like David Didow's sort of uh, concepts for mastery, you know, metaphor, story, argument, pattern, things to do with structure, language, genre, those things that can be taught knowledge of um yeah the kind of sort of theory of of books um to do with like sort of genre and uh you know uh, text type those kind of things but also the what I would call the writer's craft language form structure um repeated motifs patterns those kind of things so I would say those that was broadly what I would understand is substantive knowledge and I think one of the things I'd really like to try and do in the department, and we have started sort of moving towards this, is to try and get like shared explanations and a shared vocabulary and a shared language. So again, those things, they can be, you know, are taught, but there is a sort of parity in the way in which they are taught. Um, but they're not fixed. They're not inert facts. Uh, <laughs> you know, and to, to turn them into kind of inert facts that can just be slotted into like a, a, paragraph 
does does, mm. does our, our subject a massive disservice? I think. Is that is that I don't know. Is that what you would think? <laughs> I don't think there is. I, I, I worry that I'm going to say something on one of these podcasts and listen yeah. back to it in a couple of years' time and be like, oh, God, what were you thinking? <laughs> but I think I, I, just to come back to something that you mentioned in an earlier answer, like the idea of structure, like the idea of pattern, I, I think, think as David did, it's huge. It's huge. But yeah. then it, it kind of hits on that whole the, the complex thing I've 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 heard or seen uh, Daisy Christodoulou talk about it before, mm. where you've got like uh, you've got you've got a responsibility to teach literature, um. So you're the kind of like you're, you're instructing students on how to be a receiver of kind of like literature or, or language more generally. You've also got to teach them grammar and that kind of thing. But then at the mm. same time, you're teaching them how to be. Um, a writer and how to be so even taking like a a concept like structure that means something completely different in all three of those things like give mm. or take so there's there's an argument to be made that like just just to get through that in three mm. years um is, mm. is a tough thing so but I do I do feel like there's I'm saying to my partner who who happens to be an English teacher about this I think some of the other subjects like math, science and, and things like that seem to be almost decades ahead when it comes to thinking about these sorts of concepts in terms of the way that they are um, stratified. Mm. Um, just, just mainly because it is a little bit, and I think I'm probably doing them a disservice, but to counter what you said about English being a little bit more messy, maybe some subjects are a little bit more tidy in terms of the kind of the route between understanding this concept this concept this concept I could be completely wrong but I think it is such a nice opportunity now to have these books being brought out like David Didow and, and Sam Gibbs and mm. and yeah, all people haven't read that. I want to read that yeah and have but having and it, it is quite similar to to, to, to David Didow's book but it, it brings in um a slightly different kind of uh, conceptualization of it um but 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 it mentions the same thing that you said there about context and aspects of the writer's craft and stuff but just these conversations over twitter i i don't recall having conversations like this like this kind of level of like articulated um mm. understanding of what we should and maybe by virtue of what we should be doing what we shouldn't uh, or what we don't have time to do within the curriculum anymore even three years ago, four years ago. Mm. I don't think it was as good as this. And you think it makes me a bit kind of um, glad that I'm not applying for a job with my current knowledge or like whatever like that as a 21-year-old now. Because I think where like English teaching is going to go in the next 10, 20 years is, yeah, the sky's the limit really. I think we're building on mm. some like really important kind of understandings and I worry that like, yeah, in 10, 15 years time, if I'm a head of department and I'm having a conversation with a 25 year old teacher, I feel like they're going to be, yeah, so like light years ahead of me in terms of what they knew. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, I've been teaching um, for nearly 30, well, 30 years. So, uh, and a lot of this stuff is... Um, it's funny, actually. Sometimes it's like old wine in new bottles um, yeah. with different names, but the names are better. The clarity around the discussions yeah. are better. 
Um, the the design, yeah, definitely. Um, I can absolutely guarantee that nothing like this was on my um, PDCE, which was an utter disaster. <laughs> it really was embarrassingly bad. Yeah. It is, um, yeah, you're absolutely. But I, I remember groping for some of these ideas, like you say. It's like, I think intuitively we kind of know this stuff or we can almost reach it based on the lived experience, but without being able to explain it. Yeah. In, in that kind of way, you're like, well, I'm not going to say that in a staff meeting. I'm not going to bring that up with my head of department when I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to articulate myself properly. So, um, yeah, it's, it is, it is fantastic. It makes me kick myself for things that I've done in the past and um, things that probably should have not spent as much time on as I did, but, mm. um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's again with the, with the best of intentions, uh, you know, um, I yeah, it's uh, you just got to keep on learning, I suppose. Yeah, um, and that is a wonderful thing, isn't it? It is exciting, actually. Mm. I love that. I love that. Um, that you know, even sort of at this stage in my career, there's just I can I can be better. I can learn mm. stuff. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is fantastic. Mm. Um, okay. Well, all, all that remains for me to say, um, Elaine, is thank you very much for like giving up your time to kind of expand a little bit on i know those teach me english icons kind of organizers are very uh, strict with the amount of time that they they give and it it allows for like a really nice just just a just a plethora of kind of like different voices and different kind of uh, ideas from across the country and and different topics and stuff but as i said at the top of the the interview that yourself and like one or two other I've, i found every single presentation fascinating but the diversity thing really resonated with me in terms of like how little I think I still understand with it, but how important I think it, it is. So um, thank you very much for the initial presentation and also giving your time today. No, you're welcome. Thank you.